I want to uh, commence today's sermon by announcing that God has his limitations. God has his limitations. And it's possible that when I tell you that, that some of you may even feel a little bit disturbed by that statement. It's possible that some of you may feel a little bit uneasy about me making that statement. You may even be thinking that statement's wrong. You may think that what I've said to you, that, or what I'm going to, going to be telling you this morning, that God has his limitations, you may think that is contrary to, to Scripture. And even as I now introduce this subject to you, you may be thinking of various Scripture pa- passages that are coming to mind, passages like Luke Chapter 1, verse 37, which, which is very simple. It simply says, nothing is impossible with God. But here is someone standing in the pulpit of your church that says, some things are impossible with, for God. God does have his limitations. Surprised I can't hear pages ruffling with you flipping through pages, desperate to find scriptures that oppose my statement that God has his limitations. Well, I'll save you the trouble, and here's another one. Matthew 19, verse 26 says, With God, all things are possible, says Jesus. And I'm up here this morning saying that with God, not all things are possible. God has his limitations. Maybe your mind goes back in years to that song you might have learnt maybe at Sunday school a song like this little one my God is so big so strong and so mighty that there's nothing my God cannot do and yet here is someone standing in the pulpit who has the highest view of scripture who knows it's all God's word I happen to agree with that song I just mentioned to you but I'm telling you that this morning that God has his limitations it is true, as the song does, does say, God is so, so big, so strong and so mighty, yet there are some things that he cannot do. And before you start to walk out of today's service and write letters of disagreement, I'm asking you to just listen, and, if I'm, and I'm confident that if you listen carefully, that we, you'll not only finish up agreeing with, you, with me, I hope you'll agree with me, but also you'll no longer be disturbed. And also I believe that if you understand what I'm going to say from the Bible, you'll be happy, you'll be thrilled. There are some things that the almighty sovereign of this universe cannot do. And believe it or not, my hope depends on it. And as we enter further into today's sermon, you'll understand why. By the way, I'm not talking about theoretical or philosophical things I'm talking about about very practical things but I'll give you a, a philosophical philosophical question to think about that at least introduces the subject can God create a rock so big that even he can't lift it can he create a wall so wide that even he can't get around and that's meant to be a little trick question but it introduces a real issue Are there things that God cannot do? And I suggest to you the answer is yes. There are things that God cannot do. 
How do we understand those verses we've learnt and the songs we've learnt? How do we understand the verses that say nothing is impossible with God? Let me just say this to tidy things up before we get into the issue a bit more fully. When we read in the Bible these verses that say nothing is impossible with God and when we sing songs that reflect that truth, we need to remember that a language always has its meaning determined by context. There's nothing wrong with saying God is strong. There's nothing, there's nothing he cannot do. But when we say that, we mean there's nothing in God's will and purpose that he cannot do. There's nothing that God wants to do that he cannot do. Everything that God desires to do, he will do it. Nothing will stop him. There's no limitation from God in that sense. Whatever he plans to do will come to pass. That's what the Bible means by those sorts of passages. Whatever he plans to do will come to pass. God never faces frustration. You and I are constantly faced with frustration. We are meek and limited at most things that we want to do. God never faces frustration. He never faces results which are less complete in what he'd originally hoped for. We, we face that every day of our lives as limited human beings. God is never faced with a job that he started but couldn't perfectly finish. That's what the Bible means by those sorts of things, that all things are possible for God. God has never yet had a plan which he couldn't execute fully. But you and I have that problem all the time. We can never achieve fully what we'd hope to achieve, or, or very rarely. So that's what the Bible means by that sort of uh, un unlimited power of God. And that's a great joy to us, surely. God tells us that, he's, that he plans to ruin the devil. That's what God wants to do. And nothing is impossible with God. When he wants to ruin the devil, he's going to do it. No questions asked. God tells us he's going to destroy the kingdom of darkness. Nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, he's going to do it. It's all possible. It'll happen. God says he's going to banish Satan and all who serve Satan into outer darkness forever and ever. Well, rejoice in that. He will accomplish it. God also said, as you all know, that anyone who believes in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be forgiven and saved forever in the new heavens and a new earth. And he will bring that to pass. Absolutely. So in other words, the all things that which are possible with God has a specific reference. It refers to all the things within the will and plan and the purpose and the decree and counsel of God. What I'm declaring to you is that there are many other things outside the nature of God, outside the purpose of God, outside the plan and will of God, which God cannot and will not do. It's impossible to do those things for which I'm about to uh, introduce to you. What sort of things then? Well, there are many things, but... I'm entering into three of them, three categories of thought that the Bible deals with at length. 
three things that are limitations of God. First thing is, there are things that God cannot say. You and I can say them, but God's unable to. Secondly, there are things that God cannot do. The sad thing is, you and I can do them. The joyful thing is that God cannot do them. And I rejoice in that. Thirdly, there are things that God cannot be. You and I can be those things again, but God cannot. And I rejoice in that as well. Let's take a look at those points. Firstly, there are things that God cannot say, namely lies. God does have his limitations. He's limited to the, to the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And don't we say hallelujah. I'm so ga- glad that God is limited to the truth. I'm glad he can't lie. God's speech is limited to which is, that is true, wholesome, right and proper. God cannot say anything and everything. He can only say what is true out of anything and everything. Now there's a lot of verses that say that in a lot of places. Let me just mention four of them. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18. Don't bother looking it up. I'll read it out. This is as clear as you'll ever get. It is impossible for God to lie. That's all it says. It's impossible. Is anything impossible for God? Yes. Hebrews 6.18 says it is impossible for God to lie. I rejoice in that impossibility. Don't you? Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfil? God only works in the realm of truth. John chapter 17 verse 17 says, uh, Jesus is praying to the Father and he's praying on behalf of the church that the Father would sanctify them by the truth. And he makes this great statement, your word is truth. In other words, whatever you say, God, is true. Can't be anything else other than the truth. God can't lie. Romans chapter 3 verse 4 said, Let God be true, though every man a liar. In other words, if the whole universe lies, God won't, and God can't. He's unable to. God always tells the truth. Nothing but the truth. But the thing I like, it about, like about this is God doesn't, doesn't even have to concentrate when he speaks. He hasn't got to think hard like we do to make sure only the truth comes out. You see, the trouble of being sinful is that before we say anything, we have to do some thinking before we're going to be wise and make sure what we're about to say is not only the truth, but the same truth we said last time when a particular question was put to us. We have to be consistent with ourselves if we want to be honest and desire to be honourable. But God is not like that. It comes natural for God to speak the truth. The Bible says it doesn't come natural for sinners to speak the truth at all. The nature of sin is to hide the truth and to conceal it, manipulate it and get away from the truth. It requires no thought, no concentration for God. 
He doesn't have to be careful in what he says. He doesn't have to pause or stop or think. What did I say last time about this so I can be consistent? That is a problem once again for us humans. We have to be careful because we're sinners, but not for God. And we do sometimes lie. We, we lie sometimes deliberately, sometimes unknowingly, but we do it. Don't you agree that it's good news that God can't lie? He can't speak falsehood. Lies are impossible for God. Falsehood and deceit are far from God. It's not even in the same realms of God. When he speaks, he speaks according to his nature. And what is his nature? It is good, it is wise, it is perfect, it is truthful, it is honest, it is honourable, it is holy, it is virtuous. On the other hand, what does Jesus say about the dark spirit? He says about the devil, when he speaks, he speaks according to his nature. And that is why Jesus calls him a liar and the father of lies. The devil always speaks what is false. He might even mix it with a, with a bit of truth to even make it a little bit more believable, which is happen, happening a, well, in a lot, not only of our lifestyles, but also in our churches today. Ultimately, it's a lie, it's false. And let me finish this first point by, point by covering some important implications on the matter. It's very good. It's very good news that God cannot tell lies. He can't speak falsehood. It affects us all at ground level. For a start, the Bible says things like this to us. God has said that. He made the whole universe in six days out of nothing. And since God cannot lie, that must be the truth. God said, I made by my command. And since God cannot tell lies... That's how it happened. A Christian can't entertain the doctrine of evolution, the Big Bang, undirected, unguided, uncreated, and still say I'm a Christian and believe that God tells the truth. In order to believe that God did not create the earth in six days, you're saying, God, you're telling lies. And I'm telling you, God is unable to lie. Another implication of this is that God tells us all mankind bears his image. We were made in his image. And as a result of that, Romans chapter 1 says we know God and we can read the creation evidence about God. It's plain to us. We have no excuses for denying God and calling him a liar. And by the way, God also says, I have sent my son Jesus Christ into this world and he died on Calvary's cross to bear away the sins and the curse of sin to anyone who puts their trust in him. And here's the good news. That if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and if you sincerely have put faith in Jesus Christ and are walking according to the faith of Jesus Christ, then God say, says, you shall be saved to the uttermost. You can never be lost. Your sins are forgiven. You will never perish. And God, who said that great promise, cannot tell lies. So there's the hope of the gospel. And it all rests in the verity of God, the fact that he can't tell lies. It's interesting how many people believe in that holy and yet not believe in creation. 
God does have his limitations. The second point I'd like to bring to your attention is this, that not only God cannot say certain things, God cannot do certain things. I want to just open up two of those things for a moment, two of those things that God cannot do. One of them is this, that God cannot tolerate sin. He can't stand sin. It's impossible for God to like sin. It's impossible for God to be at ease with sin. God can never get over the fact that sin is there and it agitates him. It makes him furious. God never accommodates to that. Time does not heal God's animosity towards sin. God cannot stand sin. Not now, not then, not ever. The Bible is absolutely plain on that. You might think that that's a bit of a strange thing to be saying. Because God has been tolerating sin for thousands of years. He's been putting up with all matter of evil since the beginning of the human race. But doesn't it show the amazing forbearance of God patiently holding back the final dis- display of his, of his intolerance? That is the day of judgment. So what I'm saying here is don't misinterpret the grace of God. Don't read the grace of God to bring you to think that God therefore has learnt to tolerate sin. That is, a very, that is the very mistake the mock, that the mockers and scoffers in the last days actually do. Peter in second, second Peter chapter 3 that we read says, Be careful you don't understand the mercy of God. Don't read it as tolerance. Read it as simply grace and patience. Don't think that God has learned finally to tolerate sin and that after all the judgment that he promises is not going to come. You see, what's happened in history is so far is mainly that God has told us that he can't tolerate sin. He hasn't yet shown us. Well, there's some exceptions to that. He's flooded the whole world because he couldn't tolerate sin. And he did it in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah when he burnt them to nothing, when he couldn't tolerate sin. But they are beacons that stand out in history. But by and large, we humans have ignored catastrophes in this world and in doing so, come to the conclusion that there mustn't be a God or if there is, he has learnt to tolerate it. We need to understand that these catastrophes happen because there is a God and an angry one at that. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, The scoffers are crying out, Where is his coming that he promised? Everything goes on as it always has since creation. Peter says to them, They forget Noah's flood. They forget the world was deluged and destroyed by the flood. And they forget that the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire and judgment and destruction of all ungodly men. So let me tell you, I declare now in the exact words of the prophet Habakkuk that God cannot tolerate sin. This is not the first time this sermon has been preached. Habakkuk preached the same. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says, Your eyes, O Lord, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. I'll tell you one thing that is especially impossible for God. It's certainly true that 
he can't tell lies. That's impossible. But even more impossible that it's that it is for God should tolerate lies or any other any other sins for that matter. Not only can he not tolerate them, but he can't put up with them. He can't put up with lies, and he can't put up with falsehood, and he can't put up with sin. He can't turn a blind eye. God cannot reason like sinners do. I see nothing, I hear nothing. God can't be like like that. He's too holy. Habakkuk says he was too holy. The Bible repeatedly, repeatedly declares that God hates and loathes sin. Sin nauseates God. It's the very opposite of God's beautiful nature. God tells us over and over again that he is absolutely opposed to sin and he's going to deal with it. God's intolerance is vividly expressed in his own war cry, which is, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. If only the world would hear God's war cry. There is a day when his intolerance will be poured out on sin and sinners. Now there are two powerful evidence of God's intolerance to sin. The very reality of hell is surely the proof sufficient that God does not tolerate sin. He will banish to hell all who sin without repentance. He will banish in iniquity and its high priest to that place of outer darkness and terrible anguish. Away from God will all sin be put. Away from all that is good and is godly. Away Away. That's what hell means. So that his pure eyes will no longer be be viewing sin because it's away from God. What is hell? Well, the strict theological definition of hell is is an intolerable place at an intolerable distance from, from an intolerant God because of its intolerable iniquity. That's what hell is, and it's proof. If you ever wanted proof that God cannot tolerate sin. You know, the problem you and I have, the inexcusable thing that you and I do, is that we often tolerate sin. And what's even worse, when we don't tolerate sin, it's usually sin in someone else, but we can tolerate it in ourselves. But God bears no resemblance to you and I in that matter. Sin sin always offends him thoroughly. The other place where there is proof that God is intolerant of sin is the cross of Calvary. What is the cross of Calvary? Well, it's a place where God deals with the sins of all the people he intends to save. He can't wink at their sins. He does not let anyone into the heaven into heaven on the basis of some viewpoint called, in, called tolerance. Let me tell you that God, who you will be in heaven with, is an intolerant God still. And because he is a, an intolerant, because he is an intolerant of sin, he must deal thoroughly with our sin before we get into heaven. And so he did. He punished our sins and the, and the grace of substitute he, could, he provided 
the one who could meet the terrible load. We couldn't. The, the point that I'm trying to make is this. God would rather tolerate the indescribable infliction and anguish and misery that he imposed on his only beloved begotten son. God would rather tolerate that terrible thing than tolerate an unrepentant sinner getting into heaven. If you're reading and listening to secular humanism, I guarantee you've already got your mind partly poisoned by this view that God is a tolerant God. I can tell you now, God is not a tolerant God. Now this is very solemn. This is not what you hear preached by the world. We must have very serious views of sin. God cannot tolerate sin, so why do we do it? It's ungodly to tolerate it. By the way, I'm not talking about the gross things like murder, rape and robbery. It's easy for Christians to think of those things because we can say we don't do those things. It excuses us. But what about the things that still remain in the Christian community? Things like laziness, slackness, indifference, lack of commitment, thoughtfulness, thoughtlessness, sorry, coldness, thanklessness, ignorance, foolishness, and the list goes on. God hates those sins and will not tolerate them. So why do we? The Bible says, have the same mind in you which is also in Jesus Christ. What's in the mind of Jesus Christ? The mind of the one who's the Son of God. All the fullness, fullness of God dwelling bodily. And if Christ is fully God, the mind that Christ has is to be intolerant of sin. Another thing that God cannot tolerate is hypocrisy. He can't stand hypocrites. God cannot stand people pretending to be godly when they're not godly at all, and that gets him angry. It is impossible for God to be sucked in by sham and by an outward show of decency and religion. God cannot be fooled. The Bible says in more than one place, God is not mocked. You can't fool God. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. Over and over again, you and I remember that in the ministry of Jesus Christ, he condemned the Pharisees for that very same thing, hypocrisy. I'm sure you can remember in Matthew chapter 23, it's a long string of woe after woe. Woe to you, Pharisees, you hypocrites. And Jesus condemns them again and again for being all white and clean and decent and religious and orthodox on the outside, but on the, out, on the inside you are like dead men's tombs full of worms and corruption. Your hearts are rotten. And Jesus says, don't think God can't see it. Your religion is not worth a cent. This is one of God's great impossibilities. It's impossible to be God to be bought off and fobbed off by an outward show, a sanctimonious sort of religion which has no true fervour and love and devotion to the truth and for God and for Christ in the heart. Now you find this over and over again in the Old Testament prophets. That's why we read from a typical, typical passage from Isaiah chapter 1. By the way, did you notice that when verse 10 was read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, you heard the reading where God speaks to Israel. He calls them Sodom, then calls them Gomorrah. 
You might think that Isaiah is preaching to Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's not. He's speaking to Israel, but God is calling them Sodom and Gomorrah because their decency is only external. Oh yeah, they're going to church and they're going on with their temple sacrifices. Yeah, they're all going to church and they're doing the ritual, the religious things. They didn't break the Sabbath. No, no, no way did they break the Sabbath. But in their hearts was the same godless attitude of the Sodomites and those who lived in Gomorrah. And God says, shut the churches down. Tell the priest to go home, close the door of the assemblies, shut the temple down. I don't want any more of this empty sham and hypocrisy. God will not be mocked. He cannot tolerate that sort of behaviour. Now what's the implication of that? Well, in basic terms, God knows why you are in church here today and he knows why I'm here in the pulpit. He already knows. And we might fool each other, but there's no way in the world we can fool God. God looks into my heart, and if I'm not only doing this for motives which are inconsistent with with the Bible, then I might fool all of you. But what's the point of doing that? Because at the last day, God will say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. If you and I get involved in the things of God, that's a good thing. But if we get involved insincerely, that's worse than not getting involved at all. It only angers God more. He's already angry at the people who don't follow him, but he's even more angry when people say they follow him and they don't. That's adding to their sins and adding to God's wrath. Now the last thing this morning about this whole theme, and I hope it encourages you to do some more thinking and reading on about this issue, God having limitations. Point three is this, that there are certain limitations that God cannot be. He can't say things like lies and he can't tolerate sin and hypocrisy. Now there's something that God cannot be and what is that? Well, it's simply this. God cannot be any different to what he is. He can't be any different. He can't change. Time doesn't change God. It changes you and I. Changed a few of us in this church, I think. Hopefully for the better. I think generally it's a reasonable assumption to make with most people. Generally time makes us a bit wiser. Hopefully gives us a bit more common sense, or most of us. Hopefully that's a good truth. But it doesn't do that to God. Imagine if God is getting more sensible over time. That reflects badly on what he said last century, doesn't it? God doesn't change. Nothing changes God. Circumstances don't change God. You and I change in circumstances all the time. When you receive a letter in the mail with a $100 check attached to it, a nice smile comes to the face, doesn't it? Not too many have received $100 checks lately. Maybe $200. When you receive a bill requesting you to pay $700, don't the the circumstances change? You are changed. Your smile is not quite as wide, is it? But God is not changed by the circumstances or by men. A very clear text on this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, and he simply says this to the Lord, uh, sorry, to the people of Israel in those days, I, the Lord, do not change. 
Pretty straightforward, isn't it? James describes God in the same sorts of terms in James' letter. Chapter 1, verse 17. You read that, you read, sorry, that James says this, that God is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation. In other words, there is no change in God. Jesus Christ, who is our God, is all the fullness of God. He doesn't change. He remains the same. That's why we sang a, sing, sang a hymn along the same lines, Rock of Ages, solid, unmoved, unchangeable, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. In everything in this world, everything changes, and in all the things that change, we are all looking so desperately, searching for something that doesn't change. And I tell you, you can have it. God has this limitation, he cannot change. Aren't you thrilled by that? That is the one thing that should make, make your heart jump and rejoice, that, is that God cannot change. What he is today, he always has been and he always will be. The Bible states that he is the one who was, who is and who is to come. God can't act out of character. 2 Timothy 2 put, verse 13 puts it this way. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That is, he can't be what he isn't. God can't act out of character. The trouble is, you and I can, and we do. Isn't it true that when we're under certain pressures, when we're in fearful situations, and when temptation is really pressing hard upon us, when our emotions are unsettled and perhaps out of kilter, we find ourselves saying things and doing things in the crisis, in the heat of the moment, which later on we regret. Isn't that true? We can change, and we can change according to our whims and sometimes act out of character. Now, by the way, you and I, we make allowances for that, don't we? And the Bible tells us that we should make allowances for each other. Love covers a multitude of sins. There are certain things we need to make allowances for. But the good thing is this. We need not make allowances for God. Simply because he never acts out of character. Nothing disturbs God from his settled, godly perfection. He's always like that. He never changes. Now I'd like to finish with this conclusion. I hope if you started to write your letters of disapproval, you've at least put your pens away. If you don't agree, then I'm happy to talk to you later. But I hope you can see that it's not just heresy to say that God has his limitations. It is the full truth of the Bible. It is the truth of the scripture. God can be nothing other than God, than the good God he currently is. I commend to you today that God who made us and I commend to you both prongs of the truth. I commend to you that nothing is impossible for God. That that's a truth I support wholeheartedly. I commend to you the power of God that he will do perfectly all that he, he desires and wills to do. And I commend to you out of truth there are limitations in God. And I want you to rejoice in that as well. He can't lie. He can't be mocked. 
He can't be fooled by hypocrites and he can never change so you can bank on God. You can put your whole trust in God because he is capable of doing all he wants to do and he's not capable of doing those things inconsistent with himself and that's why he's trustworthy. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that your word is so profound, that your word is so deep and that your word is so broad and yet your word is so simple to your people. That your word is light to those who receive the light of your spirit. And Father, we therefore pray that you will accept our sincere thanksgiving that you are the God who is completely capable of fulfilling all your holy will, and you will do it. Yet you are God who is limited in the sense, Lord, that you cannot do evil and you cannot tolerate evil, and you are never fooled by evil. And Father, therefore, we can rejoice in the mighty fortress that you are as our God, that you are a refuge never failing. Lord God, thank you for these truths. And thrill our hearts more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.